Rebecca Stokes and welcome to Strategy Bites. I am the co-founder of Oak Tree Talent Group, a specialist strategy and transformation recruitment agency. Strategy Bites is a compilation of career stories and insights from the market's most experienced executives. Many have gained their strategy toolkit from management consulting. In each episode, we ask the best of the industry's talent to share the highs and lows of their careers and the best bits of advice they've ever been given. They will give us a glimpse of what their day-to-day lives look like now, warts and all. Our aim is to give inspiration to the ambitious strategists out there and give them an understanding of what is possible. In each episode, we will ask guests for a read, watch or listen to recommendation and a quote or value that they live their lives by. Series two, episode seven, I believe, of the Strategy Bites podcast. Firstly, I need to apologize about the sound quality of this recording. It's being made in lockdown. Um, I'm an, unable to get to my Yeti and other equipment that I usually have uh, for these podcasts, which are locked away in our office in Sydney. But I'm very excited to be speaking to Tim Moore and Jake Maisie from Dorado Capital. They're both fully entrenched in the world of search funds. And this is a very new concept here in Australia, and one that I think will certainly appeal to the strategy and consulting community. So welcome, Tim Moore and Jake Maisie from Dorado Capital. So thank you very much for joining me. Um, Now, obviously, um, you are new to the podcast, but what I always start with is a little bit of a background to to both of you. And it's the first time I've had two guests on at the same time. So, um, Tim, can we start with your background? Absolutely. I um, started life as an engineer. I was probably the world's worst engineer. (laughs) I worked that out. Um, I actually finished university and and headed off to work for Woodside briefly and then went into EY. So I've got a shared background with a lot of your clients as a five-year consultant at EY. Um, Then uh, went to a a law firm, um, which is now Herbert Smith Freehills and worked as a manager there. Ended up in an investment banking and stock broking position and then uh, got into a, a, a business, which we'll talk about a bit later on the podcast and and went on the journey we're on now. Excellent, great. And Jay? Uh, yeah, my background is I started at uh, KPMG and their corporate finance team uh, here in Perth, where Perth based. Um, so yes, five years at KPMG, and then I um, packed the bags and the uh, well-trodden path and moved to London, uh, where I worked for a fund management business for about five years as well. And met my wife over there and, and we decided to move back to Perth and I joined Dorado Capital in 2019. Amazing. Obviously, you guys are not in lockdown like us in Sydney here, but uh, that's no, the reason you both... we got on this week. Um, yeah, yeah I, think, I think we get to take them off tomorrow, so very exciting. <laughs> um, so Jake, look, the reason I was really, when we, when we had a chat last week, I was really excited to get you on the podcast because what you do um, in, in the world of search funds, I'd not, I'd not heard of before. And I'm sure that many of my um, audience hadn't heard of it before either. So I was really keen to get you both on. So can you explain a little bit about what it is, what is a search fund and, and how does it differ from, say, private equity or venture capital? Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, pleasure. And we're, we're pretty excited about search funds as well, because it's it's quite a new concept to us. So working in a family office, we, we invest across all asset classes, uh, equities, private equity, venture capital. And we came across uh, search funds sort of towards the back end of last year, and it's just really resonated with us. So, so what is a search fund? 
Well, it's effectively um, a young-ish entrepreneur who raises a pool of capital to then go and search for a business to acquire. Um, and it's a model that was pioneered out of um, Harvard University um, in the sort of mid to late 80s. Um, so there was, a, there was a, a professor there by the name of Irv Grusbeck, um, and he encouraged one of his MBA graduates to, to raise this pool of capital from, from a series of investors to go and find a business to search, uh, to, to acquire. Um, so this is what we call the search. And um, he was actually very, very successful. Um, he was a guy by the name of Jim Sullen uh, and acquired a business. Um, Tim will tell you a bit about it, but it was in the... Um, uh, it was a printing, printing business. Printing it was, business. Yeah, it was a, 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 a big American printing business had got a division that was highly specialised for printing forms and policies for insurance companies. They wanted to sell out of that. It was a small part of their life and... and and he, that he bought, bought that. Yeah. So um, this was the, the first search fund. And since then, it's really uh, spawned sort of niche private equity industry where there's a number of um, search funds every year. Um, and many of the guys who start these search funds have studied MBAs from some of the sort of leading business schools. So Harvard has a course, Stanford has a course, Chicago Booth and some of the European universities as well, London Business School and a few others. So it's a relatively well-trodden path in the US and Europe, sort of having started in the 1980s, but quite new to Australia. I think there are three search funds that have been launched in Australia in the last couple of years. Um, so yeah, we're super excited to, to try and um, grow the model in, in Australia. Great. And look, this is really, really relevant to sort of the community that I work in. And Tim, obviously you worked for EY as a consultant and strategy yourself um, years ago. Um, so you'll probably know that, you know, many of the consultants or strategy consultants or people from the consulting background often aspire to be more entrepreneurial or to run a, a sort of a P&L. Um, but often they find it hard to be the strongest candidate for a C-suite role or big operational roles without sort of prior experience running a P&L. So obviously, uh, obviously it can be quite frustrating for them. But, but in theory, say a graduate, say, with, with no prior experience of running a business can actually become a CEO in a relatively short space of time. Is that is that right? It is, and I think there's a couple of... of really important factors to that. The first is we are not talking about buying mega businesses. The businesses we're talking about buying might have revenues between say 10 and $30 million and earnings before interest and tax depreciation and amortization and maybe between two and 5 million. So they're not huge businesses. And secondly, the nature of the businesses that we try to persuade these guys to look at is businesses with quite high recurring revenue, businesses that are very stable, that had a long history of profitable growth. And in essence, they're something that you don't need a very experienced pair of hands to take over from, that, that, that makes some sense to get into. The last one we settled on, for example, was a commercial landscaping business where more than 80% of its revenue was contracted to local councils and housing associations. And the two guys who came into that business as joint CEO are young um, MBA graduates, um, but we felt very confident that they had the skills required to, to lead that business. So, so in terms of baseline experience, I mean, are there any, any requirements? I mean, can anyone do this? I think that if someone is too young, they may have some leadership issues. They're going to come into a business that might have 40 or 60 or 100 staff 
just a little bit hard if they're super, super young to do that. Obviously, there are some exceptions. Um, traditionally, particularly in the United States and Europe, there's been a strong orientation towards people who've done an MBA and are looking to pivot their career. Uh, but, I, but I think that I would expect that a good age for people to be doing this would be probably in the period between their early 30s and their early 40s. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that someone could do this at any stage in their career? Yes, yeah. And I think that there are people who may have had very traditional careers in the military or somewhere or other who are coming out of their career towards the end of it, who are perhaps in their middle 50s. Mm. And are saying, you know what, I would like to be the CEO. I would like to earn an equity interest in a business. I really want to do this. Um, and, and so I think, yeah, there's quite a very wide age, age range. Mm. And Jake, so an investor or, or investors will back an entrepreneur to go and find and acquire a business. So how long, generally speaking, will that search take? I mean, how much time does it typically take in Australia? Yes, yeah, so the, the searches will generally raise enough capital to pay themselves a small salary for about two years. Uh, and within that capital pool, also some, some money to do due diligence on the businesses that they find. And, and often you, you see the search take, take around that sort of two-year mark, at least one to two years generally. Because um, you've got to remember these people are looking for a business to get into and, and be the CEO for, for up to 10 years. So, so they want to make sure they find the right business. Yeah, and I'd say it's a very important aspect what Jake points out there in terms of the capacity for someone to get a regular monthly income. They might be at an age where they've already got a partner, they've got young children, um, maybe both of them aren't working, and they need to be in a position, even if it is more, more modest than what they were earning, they might have been earning 250 grand, they might move to a salary of 125 grand, but there's a big difference to have that monthly salary. Yeah. Plus the money they raise also gives them some additional money to cover things like travel and a bit of due diligence. So they can really knuckle down and commit to focus on spending time searching for a business. So this is a full-time position, essentially. Yeah, I, I think one of the surprises that's come to us, to be honest, is the enthusiasm with this, which these people throw themselves in, into searching for a business. People kind of imagine it's, you know, do you get on the mailing list for a dozen business brokers and have coffee with your mates who are in small business to see what opportunities there are. When you get exposed to a highly motivated MBA um, graduate and you find that she's got six interns working for her and is getting out mailings and joining industry associations and pumping the phones and really scouring the country to try and find businesses that are not for sale through business brokers, businesses where maybe for marital separation reasons or health reasons or other reasons the proprietor is looking to sell, you, you realise this is a very full-time and very all-consuming uh, job. And are they generally realistic in terms of how long it might take? Because I'm, I'm, I'm sure they might be quite ambitious and want it to happen quite quickly. Look, I think if I think back to my consulting life, a lot of your clients are people who are used to working on mandates for a fairly short period of time and washing their hands and walking away. One of the penny drops out of this is you really suddenly realize the business that I buy, I will probably be working very hard for for the next five mm -hmm. or six years before I sell it. And so choosing the right business is absolutely fundamental. I don't want to make a mistake. So mm -hmm. they are happy to take the time to say no to the ones that are close to being good but not good enough and really get something that works for them. 
Mm. And Jake, why would this be an attractive prospect for an investor? I mean, why would an investor go down the search fund route as opposed to say, you know, the startup or VC space? Yeah, I think, I think it is, is a good prospect for investors. Um, first of all, you're, you're backing you know, really talented, really hungry um, individuals, much like you are with a startup. But unlike a startup, they're buying existing businesses with cash flows and customers. And so it's probably a lot lower down the risk curve than, than a startup. And are the returns equally as good or? Yeah, so, so the nice thing about um, sort of being born out of business schools is the returns have been very closely tracked. And so a recent um, report out of Stanford showed that uh, all search funds to date, so over sort of the last 35 to 40 years, have returned IRRs for investors of about 32%. Mm, okay, great. Um, and when a, a searcher, I don't know if you call them searchers, <laughs> but searcher finds a great business to potentially acquire and take over, is there often competition from traditional PE firms or, or other businesses? So ideally not. Um, generally, we're looking at businesses that will be below the radar of PE. So, you know, businesses that are doing maybe two to four million of EBITDA, so it might be too small for PE. And also, you're hoping that the searcher, through their search, is um, creating a lot of proprietary deal flow, actually finding businesses before they hit the market. That's that's the ideal scenario. Mm. And that we hopefully building relationships with the vendor of that business who may be uh, a baby boomer looking to, to retire and, and want to really sell that business to, to a pair of hands that they know is going to look after their employees and, and grow that business. So that's kind of the ideal scenario here. And, and we think there's, there's a real um, opportunity with the demographics of, of the country and globally um, for these young entrepreneurs mm. to come in and take over these baby boomers businesses. And I suppose for some, some uh, owners, it's better than passing it down to uh, the next generation in the family. <laughs> you often find that the next generation don't want to take over. They've seen how uh, their parents have worked in this business for the last 20 years and they go, and that's not for me. Um, mm. so. I think, Annika, it's interesting you mentioned earlier venture capital. You know, a lot of um, consultants, either through their peer group that they met um, on an MBA or studying or else people who've left work, see people who've gone into startups. And everyone always focuses on the one or two of those that have had great um, success. But I think they're a pretty cerebral lot and they look and they realize there are a lot of people who get into a business with a great idea, three people on a whiteboard. And though if you do get it 100% right, you can knock the lights out. There's very large prospects that in 18 to 24 months time, you've sort of got your tail between your legs and it's all over. Yeah. We've between us had a lot of experience in investing in venture capital and have, and have been involved as seen investors in a number of businesses like Safety Culture and, and others that have been very successful. But for every one of those, there are tens that are on the roadside. Mm. And I think that the appeal of a search fund is that the prospects of knocking the lights out with a business that goes international and goes crazy are, are modest. Mm. But the prospects of you kind of flaming out and and being left with nothing are, are also fairly slender. Mm. And so I understand, obviously, you mentioned before, it's, it's quite a widely known concept in the US. But I mean, are there any businesses or you know entrepreneurs that you can point to that have made it really big under sort of becoming a CEO of, of a business that's been acquired through the search fund method? Yeah, look, I think every industry has got its little poster child. Um, there are two 
guys in the US, Jim Ellis and Kevin Tawil. They spent a modest amount of investors' money, about eight million US dollars, acquiring a business that did roadside assistance insurance, kind of think NRMA, RAC uh, type equivalent, uh, based in Tennessee. And after a couple of years, had the penny drop that um, there was an opportunity for them to insure people's mobile phones. And um, they created a business which is, it insures one in four people in the United States. It has 10,000 employees. Uh, it's still a private business, so I've got no idea what the business is worth. But I do know that if you look at the debt, they've got current debt of $11 billion. So we're talking about a mammoth business. Um, but I think that realistically, that's not common. Um, the acquisition we did of uh, the commercial landscaping business, there were a number of people who joined us on the cap table as fellow investors. And they had come out of doing search funds personally and had made, you know, some millions, um, which is, you know, a great start, but, but we're not talking necessarily about the kind of tech venture capital startup world. And Tim, you personally conducted a self-funded search in the early 2000s. And I'm, I'm really curious to understand how you heard about this as an option or a concept and why you chose to go down this path. Look, I had been in a very uh, high pressure role as a CEO of a listed stockbroking investment banking business. And we had diversified uh, into a technology thing probably at the wrong time, just before the sort of tech wreck of, of the early 2000s. Um, I'd fallen in love with the idea of technology. And it struck me that there was an opportunity to look around for a business to acquire. Um, the word search fund was obviously not on my mind, but what I effectively did was started to use my own capital to pay my way, went around looking for businesses, found a um, investment partner who was willing to, to back me. We spotted a business which was actually a, a mine planning software business that, that, that sold software to, to um, mining companies to help them optimize the way the mines were run. Uh, it was making a small amount of money. It was a small uh, business. The vendor had got to an age where he was keen to go. And we were able to, with that business, have the staff acquire 46%. We acquired the balance 54% uh, equally between myself and my partner, a guy called Tony Packer, who was a, a wonderful mentor through the process. And uh, we got the seller to give us a million dollars of, of um, vendor finance, which helped enormously. So the enterprise value of the business at the time was $4 million. So we put half a million dollars in each. Um, after a couple of years, we did a listing on the Canadian Stock Exchange by merging with a very similar business based in Vancouver. Uh, that left myself and my partner with the two biggest individual shareholdings in the listed business. And we then in 2009 sold out to a company called Carlyle Group out of Washington, which at the time was the world's biggest PE fund um, for $180 million. And then they subsequently sold the business to Paris-based um, Dassault System for $360 million. So that was a great journey between uh, our acquisition in 2003 and the ultimate purchase in 2012, which took the enterprise value from four to $360 million. Yeah amazing and how long did you, how long were you searching for for the right business quite a short time um 
relative to some of the searches we see now was probably about eight months. Um, however, I did know that I was focused on trying to do something in resources. The mining industry had a very difficult time um, up to 2003, and it felt like it was a sort of counter-cyclical time to get into it. And I wanted to stay in Western Australia. So it was a fairly targeted, I wanted to do something in IT, a fairly targeted search. And I think we were, we were lucky, to be honest. Mm. I mean, more generally, do you find that there is many sort of near misses, so to speak? So companies that you're keen on, do your due diligence on, and for one reason or another, it doesn't work out. Is that quite common? Yes, I think that um, there are aspects through due diligence that mean that what is initially presented to you appears somewhat different. Maybe, for example, the, the level of contracted revenue which got you excited about a business is, is, is a bit more flaky than you thought. Or there are a number of key people in positions in there who are very important to the business who end up being family members of the vendor and you sort of feel maybe they're gonna go. There's different things come about. Mm. Um, but I would say from all of the conversations we've had that most people should bargain on having one close miss where they've spent some serious money on due diligence and legals and nothing has happened, but probably not more than one. Right. Yeah. And Jake, where would one even start a search, especially if they don't have sort of an M&A type of background? I mean, would one go after a company and sectors they're passionate about? Or is there a specific formula that you give them that they follow? Or is it just literally the one that's sort of right for turnaround? I mean, how, where do you start? Yeah, I guess, um, I mean, the first place to start would be a little, to learn a little bit about the search fund model. Um, there's a lot of resources out there that you can read and a lot of people that you can speak to. Um, there's quite a good community now in Australia of past searchers and investors who are very willing to, to share their experience. So I think you know, anyone who's interested, I think that's a, that's a good place to start. Um, and in terms of you know what, what businesses people should be looking to buy, I, I do think it's good to have sectors that you're interested. Maybe, maybe you've got big work experience in, in a certain sector or or, you know, you, you should have some, some reason to be looking for a business. Um, but also, you know, we're looking for, for, as Tim mentioned before, businesses with uh, certain characteristics. So in that kind of two to five million EBITDA range, so small businesses, but not, not too small. Um, reasonably good uh, margins, sort of 15% EBITDA margins. Um, a good level of recurring revenue that kind of de-risks the business from day one when a new CEO will step in um, and a strong management team. So mm. they're kind of the key things we're looking for when, uh, when acquiring a business. But we do like the searchers to have an idea of the sectors that they're, they're um, interested in before mm. of coming okay. and raising some capital and, and some, some thoughts on how that they're, they're going to grow those businesses in those sectors as well. Mm. One of the nice things I think, Annika, is that the process, particularly as it relates to a traditional search fund, effectively puts in place a mentoring group for that entrepreneur because they're likely to have, say, 10 investors each throw in 10% of the value of the money that's going to keep them going for the two years of the search. And those investors are very motivated to help them be successful. Mm. So they'll be sending through, look, I've got this pack in relation to this business. What are your early thoughts? What, what would be your key due diligence points? And there's a real dialogue going backwards and forwards. And when you speak to people who have been through a successful search, that mentorship and some of those people will go on to serve on the board of the ultimately acquired company has been 
absolutely fundamental. Mm. Mm. And it must be amazing when you sort of find your right business and it's, you know, it's all, all the done and dusted, all the deals done. I mean, do you recall your first day as CEO of that business? I mean, what was that like? Well, I've got to be honest with you, having spent a number of years in a very stressed position as a, as a CEO of a, of a listed company, my burning desire was to buy a business that had a good CEO in it. Right. So I was lucky enough to end up sort of being executive chairman and, and very involved with the business, but it had a very good CEO in it. But I do think that it is a mixture of exciting and lonely. I do think you suddenly kind of realise your capacity to go to the drinks cooler and whinge about the boss and the structure of the business suddenly disappears because it's sort of all, all the buck stops with you. But it's very yeah. exciting. And I think a lot of people want to finish their career knowing at some stage they have done that. You know, they would have a regret if they didn't think they had. Mm. And does the support sort of continue after they become a CEO? Because obviously some of them have never held a role like that before, I'm, I'm assuming. And so obviously are they set up for success? Is there support beyond, you know, the, the search? Yeah, so... In the original search, let's say that this person was uh, raising a search fund of $360,000, which is what they thought was appropriate for a couple of years runway to walk around and find a business. The investor who backed them for 10% of that has only written a check for $36,000. If they identify a business that costs $12 million and maybe only has $4 million coming from the bank in debt, then that's $8 million of cold, hard cash that's gone in from the investors. Those investors are very focused to roll their sleeves up and do everything they can to help in terms of, mm -hmm. of referrals and guidance and people to come and work there and everything possible. Yeah, so they've got a lot of support behind them. Absolutely. So obviously these people, generally speaking, would be very entrepreneurial types. Yeah. Um, and I feel that word entrepreneur is banded around you know, quite widely these days. But what do you think makes a true entrepreneur successful? You know, I think the interesting thing is that true entrepreneurs are very willing to tolerate very high risk and are very accepting of failure. And I think if you pick any of the Uber entrepreneurs from the Jeff Bezos's to the Elon Musk or whatever, those guys' um, tolerance for risk is off, off, off the scale. I think one of the interesting things about looking at the population of people who end up being CEOs of businesses that be bought out of a search fund, they're often more cautious about risk. They're entrepreneurial in the sense of um, that they know that there are risks involved and they know that they might fail, but they are very careful in planning through things. So it's a, it's a slightly less uh, risk tolerant um, as someone said to me, they're the kind of people who like to pack their own parachute. Excellent. And then obviously thinking about the world of entrepreneurs, you must have worked with some interesting characters over, over your time. And thinking back of your career today, is there anyone who's really inspired you in this world? Yeah, I think that there are people in, obviously a lot of, um, both of our careers have been very much around investment. And there are people on the investment side of things who are very good at uh, going against the tide, which is tough. Um, if you look at the investment markets at the moment, they're, they're very frothy. Um, I remember a, a guy, Sir John Templeton, who started a thing called Templeton Growth Fund, which was very famous because over a 38-year period, it, it had an average return of 15% per year, which was pretty astronomical. 
Um, but he always had this phrase, which I thought was great, which was the four most dangerous words in investing. Uh, this time it's different. <laughs> and, uh, I think that there's a lot to be said for when, whenever you look at something, you go, I don't know, all of those old rules don't apply because this time it's all different. It probably is. Oh, goodness. And that probably leads me quite quite well on to, I always ask my guests on, on the podcast for a favourite quote and also um, read, watch or listen to recommendation, either podcasts or books that they've that have inspired them over the years. I mean, guys, do you have anything to know? I'm outside of the, uh, the search fund world. So there's a guy in Australia who, who actually did a couple of searches uh, by the name of Pete Sullivan. Um, and he does a podcast that, that really explores the world of search funds and, and focuses on Australia. So he interviews a, a number of searches in Australia and also some investors um, in, the, in the search fund world in Australia. So if you're, if you're interested in search funds, then I would look up Pete Seligman and the Next Step podcast. Excellent. Tim? I'm going to go very specific, given we've got um, probably largely Australian audience. Yes. Um, there's a wonderful... National Public Radio uh, podcast series out of the States by Guy Raz called How I Built This. And one of the episodes in that, uh, which is from um, the 12th of September, um, I believe, is the two guys from Atlassian. Mm. And here, um, Mike Cannon, Brooks, and, and uh, his partner be interviewed about right from the very start, you know, when Mike sent an email out around his mates at college saying, I'm looking to do this. Is there anyone willing to part me on it? And that's a business which, you know, at close of trading last night was worth 90 billion Australian dollars. Okay. Uh, and it's amazing. And, and Guy Raz does a fantastic job of interviewing them, really getting out of them um, how it was. I mean, one of the bits I loved in that story was uh, Mike had previously done a business that failed and he had got money off his old man. So when he came up with it, Lassie and the old man said, I've done this once, didn't work, I'm not gonna do that again. So he didn't put any money in. Regretting it now. <laughs> Just on the reading side, if anyone was interested, there's a, there's a wonderful book. Um, a senior uh, analyst for many years and, and partner at Morgan Stanley was a guy called Barton Biggs, and he wrote a fascinating book um, called Wealth, War and Wisdom. And it's really about looking at the equity markets through World War II, as in Japanese ones and German ones, and US ones, UK ones, etc., and what went up and what went down and, and it, it, what was driving it and just some amazing things. You know, suddenly the um, UK stock market, for example, at a point in time took off completely unexplainably when it looked like England was going to fall. And yet when you went back afterwards, that was really when the Battle of Britain turned in the favour of the UK. And it's almost like the consensus of the markets knew first. Great book. Amazing. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, and obviously, Jake, Dorado Capital is currently looking for entrepreneurs who may be interested in this concept here in Australia. So you mentioned um, doing some research and things, but if they want to get in contact with you, what, what steps should they take next? Uh, no, absolutely happy to, to chat to anyone who's um, interested in this model. Um, yeah, I think, uh, as I said, there's resources online from, from Stanford and IASC, which are brilliant. Um, there's podcasts and, yeah, but I would just start reaching out to people within the search fund community. Um, there's a website, searchfunder.com, uh, where uh, investors and searchers can come together and collaborate and discuss. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I'm happy to, to take any calls of, of curious people and help them 
uh, learn about search funds. Amazing. Uh, you, you might want to put a, a link on the base of um, your podcast just to, we've got a short video that runs for about eight and a half minutes, which just introduces search funds and is very much having some of the um, key players in the US speak about it in different ways. It's sort of a compendium we've put together, a mashup of different stuff, which I think people would find interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Is, is that the YouTube one? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Happy to share that. I'm just wondering if there's anything else that they, someone should be thinking about, doing some soul searching to think about if, if, if this is right for them. What would you say they should be really thinking about whether if they're considering this? I think I was, I was listening to uh, another searcher um, in Australia, a guy by the name Greg Green, and, and when he talks about sort of stumbling across the search fund model, in his head, he was always going to be a business owner. He always wanted to own a business. And then when he heard about this model, the penny kind of dropped and said, well, this is a way that I can go and actually do that. This is a real tangible way to, to do that. So I think if you're one of those type of people, maybe, uh, maybe this is for you. Mm. I think it might appeal to many of my uh, my contacts um, who listen to this podcast. So look, I really appreciate you guys coming on and sharing this information and hopefully they can reach out to you directly if they are interested. So yeah, but I really appreciate your time. They absolutely can. Thank you very much, Anna. Thanks, Anna. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Strategy Bites podcast, bringing strategy career advice to the market. But please do remember that first and foremost, Oaktree Talent is a specialist strategy and transformation recruitment agency. So if you're a top tier consultant or want to hire excellent strategy capability, please get in touch.